you're new with us, uh, we're working our way through Genesis. We're spending a bit of time in the early portion of Genesis as it's so foundational. Uh, we'll be making a lot more progress in the weeks of come, and I'm actually handing off the majority of our study, the rest of Genesis, to my colleagues, and so I look forward to hearing uh, the word preached uh, myself. Uh, but today we're on the very important subject of the Sabbath, the seventh day, and so let's pray together as we look at this first, but also consider what the whole Bible says about this subject. Father, we thank you for another wonderful opportunity we have to study your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us about these foundational issues uh, that we're studying in the book of Genesis, uh, helping us to understand you, uh, this world, our own lives. Uh, and I pray that today you would help us to understand what it means to truly rest. And so we pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Maybe you've heard the story about the management consultant, the gardener, and the politician. They were all in a pub one day debating which one had the most noble vocation. And to bolster their arguments, they decided to start quoting the scriptures. And the gardener said, well, on the third day, God brought forth plants. That makes gardening the greatest profession. The management consultant responded, yes, but on the first day, God created order out of chaos. Therefore, management is the greatest profession. Ah, said the politician with a twinkle in his eye, but who created the chaos? <laughs> Politicians are the greatest profession, right? <laughs> now, we've considered the six days of creation, and we gave focused attention to the Imago Dei uh, on day six, the fact that God made us in his image, and that means that we have certain dignity, we have certain capacity, and we have certain responsibilities. And the call to rule well in God's world, to be God's steward, gives all of our work great meaning and dignity. It may be in management, it may be in gardening, it may be in politics, it may be in your schoolwork or your housework. We can do our work for God's glory, and that gives our work a, a, a great sense of, of dignity. And of course, work has its frustrations. As Genesis 3 reveals, one of the effects of the fall uh, is that our work has been frustrated. But this is not a, a sermon on work, this is a sermon on the, the flip side of, of work, and that is the subject of rest. I thought it would be good and wise for us to spend a whole sermon on rest uh, because of various conversations I've had through the years with people in this church uh, that would admit uh, being overworked or feeling overworked. Or, uh, Pastor Tony, would you preach a sermon to my husband about rest? He doesn't know how to rest. And I'm like, well, I'm going to preach one to myself uh, and hope everybody else can listen in. So anyway, that's what I'm doing today. I know it's a real temptation in the American culture as well to, to uh, idolize work, to be overworked. Uh, you work on Saturdays and Sundays. You burn the candle at both ends. It's easy to believe the lie that your life is about your grades, your performance, or your output. It's easy for those who work too much to have their mood affected by how their work is going. Uh, many are eager to get the laptop open first thing in the morning and get to work rather than trying to spend some time with the Lord. John Hammond quips, Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play in their worship. Worship their work, work at their play, and play in their worship. Now, why is it such a problem in culture? Here are four quick reasons and you could add more to this list, not tended to be exhaustive, people seek oftentimes their identity from their work. 
So illustrated by that great movie, Rocky, Rocky won, the best one of all of them, in my opinion. Uh, when, when Rocky is asking, why is he working so hard? And he says, I have to go the distance, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Like the only way he can, you know, say that he's not a bum is that he has to do a certain thing. He has to go the distance. And so there is this temptation to derive your identity from your work. A lack of job security often drives being overworked. You have a pressure to excel, and this pressure can build and create all sorts of problems. There are some companies who even expect their employee, employees to overwork, regardless of where they're positioned in the company. Sort of an expectation, even a, a sense of pride comes with that culture. And then there's technology, which is not helping us on this matter of rest, is it? Now we can work anywhere, and so many people work everywhere. Now, there are some people, true, that idolize rest, albeit the wrong form of rest. They call it chilling or, or chillaxing. Uh, and all they live for is the weekend. You hear about that in all sorts of country music songs. Um, and they need a sermon on work ethic, but that's another sermon. This one is about rest. And central to finding true rest is coming to Jesus. You see, there is a rest that only Jesus can give. By trusting in Jesus, by resting in Jesus, we find salvation, we find our identity, we find our purpose, and we find peace. Jesus can give you the rest that a vacation cannot give you. You ever wonder why you're so frustrated on vacation sometimes, <laughs> other than your kids? Uh, sometimes there's something about you've set an expectation on a vacation that it can never deliver. There is a rest that is greater than all forms of rest. And that is the rest we find in Jesus. You know, sleep experts talk about deep sleep, deep rest, REM sleep. And they say you need to sleep a little while before you enter REM sleep. If you fly overseas, you might have six one-hour naps, but you can't say I slept for six hours. You really didn't because you didn't really enter into that quality sleep. It doesn't feel the same. But Jesus gives you the REM for your soul. And only Jesus can give that. And so let's think about what it means to rest physically and to rest in Jesus. All right? Now, verse 1 shows how God finished his work. As I said before, this really goes better with chapter 1. It forms a, 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 what they call, the scholars call an inclusio or bookends with verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and now this particular verse showing that God has completed his work of creation. Everything is in harmonious perfection. Creation is lacking nothing at this point. Three days of form, three days of filling, mankind being the crowning of creation, all of it showing that our God is worthy of worship and glory. Now let's think about the Sabbath in three parts. First of all, understanding the Sabbath. Secondly, coming to the fulfiller of the Sabbath. And thirdly, practicing the Sabbath. All right? So first, understanding the Sabbath. Verses 2 to 3 show us that this pattern of rest in creation is first given to us by our God as he gives us the pattern, and later it is reinforced in God's law as this verse is reflected on. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the Sabbath from all of the work that he has done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now think about the significance of this day for a minute. It is really different than the previous six days. Here are some 
some unique aspects of the seventh day. First of all, there is no, and God said, and there was a seventh day of rest. God doesn't need his creative word. It's already been created. So there is just this seventh day without the and God's uh, said statement. Notice also how rested is repeated in verses 2 and 3. God rested on this day. Again, it's not as though God was exhausted and he now needed some hydration and nine hours of sleep. He needs no sleep. He needs no food. He needs no air. He doesn't slumber nor sleep, the psalmist says. So what does it mean for God to rest? The word means to cease from. God stopped his creative work on this day. He ceased. He stopped doing something because he had completed something, namely creation. Now, it doesn't mean that God stopped being active in the world. He's also the sustainer of everything that he has created. But on this particular day, he ceased. And it actually carries more of this sense of he also was taking delight in his creation. As God sees that everything is good, and now he derives pleasure and satisfaction as he observes the fruit of his labor. And you and I, as image bearers of God, we, we experience this along, uh, the, along the way in our lives. As we complete a certain task or project, we take delight in that. And so God ceases from his creative work, and he's delighting in his world. And as his image bearers, we are meant to enjoy God in God's world. There is more to life than work, more to life than performance, more to life than our grades. There is enjoying God, delighting in God. Notice also there's the closing refrain that's absent. There was evening and there was morning. Previously, that phrase concluded uh, the previous day's end. But there is a sense in which now the Sabbath has been going on. It's, it continues. In other words, God's world was complete. Adam and Eve now live in that perfect world. Now notice also significantly in, uh, fourth, uh, in this text that God blessed this day and made it holy. That is, he set this day apart. He made it holy, and he blessed it. Previously, in the previous six days, there were two blessings. One on the blessing on the living creatures, verse 22, and then on Adam and Eve, verse 28. And there the blessing was attached to be fruitful and multiply. Well, here on the seventh day, he blesses it, but here the focus is more on a spiritual blessing. This day will, will bring a spiritual blessing to people. It will be fruitful for human existence. It will give power and richness to life. And all of this foreshadows the work of Jesus, who has given us true Sabbath rest. In him we find ultimate blessing. Through him we bear spiritual fruit. Now notice also, the previous six days, each day was paired with another day. We looked at how days one and four 2 and 5 and 3 and 6 all correspond. There's no correspondence to day 7. It's a unique day. And notice how three times the seventh day is repeated. Seven as a, a number of perfection, and it is indeed perfect. And I think pointing to our ultimate destiny of our eternal rest in Christ. All of that to say this is a significant day. It's a day set apart. It's a day that's very unique, and it's a day that's about rest. It's a day that's about ceasing from our labor. And that's what rest involves, ceasing from our work. As uh, Wynnum, a commentator, put it, the seventh day is not called the Sabbath here, 
but it is alluded to, for he rested, could be paraphrased, he Sabbathed. Here, God is described as resting on the seventh day, but the narrator clearly implies that mankind, made in the divine image, is expected to copy its creator. Indeed, the context implies that a weekly day of rest is as necessary for human survival as sex or food. This is an emphasis that seems to have been forgotten today, he says, even amongst Christians. In other words, we are expected to copy our creator, necessary for survival. It is a gift given to us by our God. So have you learned to cease from your labor? Now this pattern then is reflected upon in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 16, even before the Ten Commandments, uh, God provides manna for the children of Israel morning by morning. They are to go out and the flaky little Krispy Kreme is out there for them to gather up and they are, they are only to get one day's provision each day they get it, except for the sixth day. They get double the amount and it doesn't spoil so that they don't have to go out and get it on the Sabbath day. They get twice as much, kind of like some of you perhaps that go to Chick-fil-A on a Saturday and double up uh, for, for Sunday's snack, right? Um, they would go out and get enough for the Sabbath. Well, then the law is given, and it's interesting. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the, the law about the Sabbath is given twice, but it's slightly different in that God gives a different motivation in these two texts for honoring the Sabbath. One of the motives is back rem remembering creation. The other motive is remember redemption. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remembering your creator is the very first one in uh, Exodus 20. After God gives the command that you should not do any labor on this day, he says in verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth. So again, it's, it's hearkening back to the pattern set out for us by our creator. And then the Sabbath command is found again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, but this time the motive that undergirds it is remember that you used to be slaves, but God liberated you. This is Deuteronomy 5, 15. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. There was no Sabbath for Israel in Egypt. They were slaves. Slaves can't rest. But God delivered them. God redeemed them. And the Sabbath was to be a reminder not only of creation, but of his liberating grace. It was a gift given to them by their saving God. In other words, every Sabbath, they were to think about their Creator and their Redeemer. There's a physical and spiritual aspect to keeping this Sabbath. Mark Buchanan, in a great little book called The Rest of God, says, Exodus grounds Sabbath in creation. Deuteronomy grounds it in liberation. Exodus remembers Eden. Deuteronomy, Egypt. In Exodus, Sabbath-keeping is about imitating the divine example and receiving divine blessing. In Deuteronomy, it is about taking hold of divine deliverance and observing divine command. Exodus looks up, Deuteronomy looks back. Exodus gives theological rationale for rest and Deuteronomy historical justification for it. One evokes God's character, the other his redemption. One calls us to holy mimicry, be like God, the other to holy defiance, never be slaves again. Enjoy your Creator and your Redeemer. He is good to us in giving us this pattern of rest. This also became a covenant sign, didn't it, for Israel, that this was one of the, the ways that they were marked out from surrounding nations 
was that they observed this Sabbath day. And finally, we can note that the promised land was also about rest. This land flowing with milk and honey was about God delivering them from their enemies and taking them to this place of rest. And that promised land was but a a little microcosm, a little type of the new creation to come where we will enjoy true, ultimate Sabbath rest as we dwell with our God forever. Now, how do we apply all of this information from our text, from Exodus, Deuteronomy, and so on? Today, some people insist that this happened on the seventh day of the week, um, but I don't think that moral demand is upon us. I think there's great freedom in how you Sabbath, in how you rest. And that's not just my opinion. The Apostle Paul uh, talks about this in at least three passages, and it's alluded to in others. Here's an important one in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions about food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, what we need more than physical rest is we need Jesus. And Jesus has come to us to give us ultimate rest. And so Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. You're not uh, morally obligated to uh, keep this Jewish uh, law uh, as the Jews did in the Old Testament. There's freedom here. But what we do agree upon is that there is a pattern built into humanity. Because we're image bearers of God, we need somehow to figure out how to have a good rhythm of work and rest. How to build into our lives worship and work as people who want to imitate our God and people who want to reflect on his liberating grace. And so that's what I'm encouraging you with today as we think about how to not worship our work, how to build build in good rhythms of resting and ultimately trusting in Jesus who can give us the ultimate rest. Now there are going to be seasons when it's really hard to rest. If you've got six kids running around the house, it's really difficult probably to find some time. Or if you're doing a residency as a physician, there are going to be seasons where it's very hard. I simply want to remind you of how you're made today. You're not just someone who is a machine that is to perform. You're an image bearer of God, and there's more to life than work. We also need to rest just as our God did. Now, from that, after having a bit of an understanding of, the, uh, of Sabbath, Let's talk about coming to the fulfiller of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was a pointer, a sign to Jesus. And we can have present rest in Jesus. When you get to the New Testament, you see that God's people had turned the Sabbath into something that it was never designed to be. Rule upon rule had been added to the Sabbath, and the Sabbath had become a burden rather than a blessing. And so Jesus comes onto the scene, and he bursts the old wineskins with the new wine of the kingdom. We find Jesus having several controversies on the Sabbath. We find Jesus healing people on the Sabbath as if to say, this is what the Sabbath is about. This is, this is what it's all pointing to. It's pointing to me, the one who is the restorer of all things. And Jesus says some really radical things about the Sabbath, like Mark two twenty-seven. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This was, A, a massive claim about his deity. He's Lord of the Sabbath. But it's also a massive claim that the Sabbath is all about Jesus. And there are hints all through the Gospels that the Sabbath pointed to him. 
If you go to Israel today, it's fascinating, or maybe you'll get to go in the future as you observe how the Sabbath is observed and how things just cease <laughs> and how the elevators will stop on each floor and take a rest. You know, it'll take you an hour and a half to get up and down the, the, the elevator. Um, and all of that is pointing to a rest that you can only have in Christ. You remember Jesus' great invitation when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus' invitation to the whole world. Lay down your burden. Speaking here of salvation. Stop your works-based salvation project and trust in Jesus' finished work and you will find rest for your soul. If you find someone in a religion of works-based salvation, you will find an exhausted person. And Jesus says, put it down. Stop trying to earn God's favor with your work. The gospel isn't about earning, it's about receiving. Jesus has completed the work for us. The hymn writer put it, Weary working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Jesus is the true source of rest. He lifts the burden of guilt off of us. He frees us from slavery. He makes our souls light. He fills our souls with joy. Think back to Genesis chapter 2, 1 and 3 again. Over and over, God says, it was good. It was good. That was very good. Similar, again, to how we see finished products when we say that was very good. God was fully satisfied. And resting in Jesus means that you look to Jesus as he said, it is finished on the cross, and being fully satisfied with what he did on your behalf. There's nothing else I can contribute. Nothing else I can add. We look to him at the cross and we say that was very good. We are fully satisfied in what Jesus has done. That's how we lay our deadly doing down, is by seeing that Jesus accomplished all of it. We don't have to prove ourselves because of what Jesus has done. I have no one to impress, and I have nothing to prove because Jesus Christ finished his work on my behalf. And now I rest. Now I rest. And there's a future rest, isn't there? There is an already but not yet rest in Jesus. Here I'm speaking of heaven or the new creation. Revelation 14, verse 13 has this wonderful verse that's encouraged my soul this week. I don't think it's on the screen. Um, actually, it is on the screen. That's powerful. Um, where the, the writer says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. I love, first of all, that little phrase, who die in the Lord. That's how we die as Christians. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Notice two things that are present there, reward and rest. We die, but our deeds follow us. That means all of the work we do for Christ on this earth matters. Your deeds follow you, but notice there's not only reward, there's rest. So you ask yourself the question, is following Jesus worth it? Yes, there is reward and there is rest from our toil. We are going to rest one day and there will be no more trials and no more toil and no more pain and no more hardship. 
there is a future rest in Jesus, or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Again, that promised land was a type of rest that we will enjoy in the new creation. And we will have full satisfaction in that moment. We will look at the new creation in the presence of Jesus and all of his people and say it is very good. It's very good. Now finally, let's conclude our time by talking about how to practice the Sabbath. We're not under the Sabbath law, as I've said, so I'm not going to give you a a, a legalistic plan that you must follow. The big idea is we need to embrace life-giving things. We need to have moments, seasons, where we cease from our toil and we embrace things that give life to us. Now, I'm going to list for you kind of some external things for you to consider as you think about how to practice Sabbath. But there is one internal thing that's necessary for us to do it, and it's simply this. We have to learn to trust God. <laughs> we, we can't rest if we can't trust God. Because I get restless when I, 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 I tend to believe everything is up to me. And it's hard. And one of the things the Sabbath is teaching us is that we're not God. He's actually running the world okay. And he's at work when I'm asleep. I can take a nap because God is God. And so to, to really practice Sabbath, I have to believe that uh, God is creator. One writer puts it like this, lots of people call God creator but live like evolutionists. It's as if life is about the survival of the fittest rather than living as a dependent creature, trusting our creator rather than ourselves according to our maker's instructions. Maybe, maybe that hits home with you. Yes, I believe in creator. I live a little bit more like an evolutionist than I should. How might we improve in this? Well, one of the things we just simply have to remember is that we're human beings. We keep coming back to this very basic idea that we're image bearers of God. We're not angels. We're not people that don't requ- or beings that don't require rest. And even sometimes in, in ministry, you can sort of take on this identity that everything is up to you and you can't rest. So, for example, in his book Reset, David Murray talks about how young ministers often go into churches and they're exhausted in their first several months because they haven't learned good rhythms of work and rest. And he quotes a retired pastor, Al Martin, who trained pastors for years, who said he regularly has this conversation with young ministers who, after their first season of ministry, call him and say, I can't pray, I can't study, I can't sleep, I think I'm going to resign. And this is his advice. He says, here's your problem. You're trying to live like a disembodied angel rather than flesh and blood humanity. Here's your solution. First, exercise vigorously at least three times a day or three times a week. Uh, That's a lot. Uh, Second, take a full day off. And third, spend at least one evening a week with your wife alone. Now, usually they're looking for more spiritual advice than that. And so he says the, the younger leaders will tend to push back and say, I can't do that. There's sermons to prepare. There's all these certain things I gotta do. And he will say to them, do this for a month and call me back if it doesn't work. And he said he's never been called back just illustrating this idea that we're image bearers of God in need of rest. So let me encourage you in some practices here. First of all, learn to Sabbath. We have to plan to rest. If you don't take a voluntary Sabbath, you'll take an involuntary Sabbath. (laughs) A little better to take the voluntary, isn't it? 
Now, I work hard, like many of you in this room, and I love my work, but I need to rest. And what helps me more than anything, and I'm not great at this, but is to calendar, to schedule things weekly, monthly, yearly, that will allow me to rest. When you work, work. And when you rest, rest. You know, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you know, it's about the hobbits' little journey to drop off their bit of bling in the volcano. And uh, it's, it's, it's all about this, this, uh, this battle. But they come to this one little place called Rivendell. And Rivendell, modern-day New Zealand, is just a gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous place. I haven't been to New Zealand, but I want to go there. Uh, and it's where the elves live. And it's this beautiful forest. And there they have this extended stay in Rivendell in the midst of their tumultuous journey. And Tolkien says, For a while the hobbits continued to talk and think about the past journey and of the perils that lie ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell, that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. It's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to take a day off, what it looks like to, to have a, a Sabbath. It doesn't mean that the battle is removed from your life, but it can give you strength and health and hope in the present. We all need some restful trips to Rivendell. Now, secondly, let me encourage you to include various life-giving graces in your life. Here are a few of them, not exhaustively. Inaction, avocation, recreation, contemplation, adoration. These are the kinds of things that are restorative. Do the things that are a delight to you. This is what God tells Israel in Isaiah 58, verse 13, that you should call the Sabbath a delight. In other words, you shouldn't ask God on this day, what can't I do? But rather, how are you going to give me grace today? How, how, how can, can I be restored today? Inaction simply means you cease working. That'd be a good first step for many of us. It may mean you put the phone away. You're simply present. You're simply there. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, God not only gives the people a Sabbath, He gives the land a Sabbath. And on this Sabbath, the, they weren't to go plant new crops or different crops. They were just to let whatever pop up, pop up. There was inaction that was actually healthy. There's avocation. This is not your occupation, but what you do for pleasure. Now, I've mentioned yard work last couple of weeks. I enjoy that, A, because my yard is tiny, and B, I don't do it for a living. I know our landscapers probably don't want to cut their grass on their day off. And if you're a fisherman as a vocation, you probably don't want to fish on your day off. But there are things that we're able to do, some kind of hobby that can breathe life into you. And recreation, it can actually do that sort of recreating work in our life. By contemplation, I mean things that you can do to admire beauty. We're made to behold beauty. Isn't it great to put our phone away and stare at the ocean for three hours? go to the mountains and just sit there and observe the beauty of nature. As we're working day by day by day by day, we, we need rhythms of beholding beauty, maybe works of art, other forms of aesthetic beauty. And we need more than anything adoration. We need to set aside time, unhurried time, with Jesus. 
Because the most life-giving thing in the world is the gospel. And I need to sit with Jesus, to be with Jesus, to reorient my heart and my mind around the good news of the gospel, communing with him. So include some of these graces into your life. Thirdly, be in community. We need a community because we need A, accountability, and B, we need encouragement. There are going to be seasons in our lives when we have to work a ton. We can, there are going to be seasons where you can never have the perfect work-life rest balance if you're doing a residency, if you're planting a church. But you need to be able to tell someone, hey, after three years, I want you to slow me down. When this is over, I want to, to build in my life better patterns. Tim Keller, uh, late pastor in, in New York, said that very thing. He told his family before he planted Redeemer in New York, I'm going to overwork for three years because we're starting a church, and after that it's going to be great. And then he admitted three years turned into four, and he was still working way too much. And so one day he came into his apartment, and his wife Kathy, who's filled with personality, was out uh, on the uh, balcony on a, on a warm day, and she had taken the saucers, so little plates, that were given to them at their wedding. And she had a hammer, and she was smashing these saucers. And Pastor Keller walked out and says, what's going on? And she says, you haven't heard me. You promised that you would dial it back. You're not taking enough time off. You're not practicing Sabbath. You're not hearing me. Well, he said he started hearing her after that <laughs> and began making changes in his life and uh, tried to get better rhythms. And later she smiled and told him, I was just smashing the saucers that we didn't have cups for anymore. Uh, <laughs> be accountable. Be accountable. We need people in our life to, to hold us up and to encourage us. Maybe there are people in this church that are in similar profession as you, and you can have discussions about kind of practices that you're uh, doing in order to, to establish these rhythms. And then finally, as you seek to practice Sabbath, we're back to Hebrews 4 and Revelation. Remember that your citizenship is in heaven. You see, as, as we attempt to practice this rest, there are going to be moments in which we still long for more rest. <laughs> and that's actually a good reminder that we're not at home yet. Mark Buchanan again finally says, the truth is, we're always a bit restless. We're supposed to be. This is not a flaw in our faith. It is faith's substance. It is a divine ruse to keep us from making permanent settlement this side of eternity. Our citizenship is in heaven. Between now and then, here and there, we live as sojourners, Bedouins, exiles, tent dwellers. If ever we achieve perfect Sabbath here, unbroken rest and restfulness, then the eternal rest that the Sabbath hints at would become irrelevant. God lets us groan now to woo us heavenward. He gives us rest here, but not enough to fully satisfy, just enough to keep us in the race. Take anything you delight in here on earth, your children, your craft work, your hot tub, praise God, the dude green on a fairway on a July morning, the sweet corn from your garden, butter drenched. <clears throat> Enjoy them all. Find rest in them. But imagine, as you enjoy these things, how much more awaits you. So much more awaits us. That's what the Sabbath is telling us. And so let's seek to practice it. And when we practice it, as we have these times of rest and when we enjoy the various graces of life, as we have moments of worship and adoration, as we cease from our labor, let us be reminded that we're not home yet. Soon we will experience the real Rivendell, a new creation 
in the presence of our Savior who cried out on the cross, it is finished. And because he finished his work, we can rest in him right now. And one day we will rest in him fully in a new creation. Father, we thank you for your word, for the promises of it, the truthfulness of it, and the timeliness of it. I pray you would grant us much grace in believing these things and applying them to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.